Well, hey, how are you guys? All right. Okay. Good to see everybody. Yeah, I'm glad you're here with us. My name's Carter. I'm one of the pastors here at Redemption Church. Thank you for being with us today. And before we get into the actual message, I do have a few things that I want to just make sure this is on all of our radars because this is a big season for us, you know, at the end of the year here as a church. And so the first thing I want to talk about is just really encouraging and challenging you to consider who you're inviting to our Christmas service on December 21st. Thursday, December 21st is when we're celebrating Christmas together as a church. And it's going to be really fun, but also impactful. And we're hosting it on that Thursday because we did a survey. And that's when most of you said that you could be here, that you weren't going to be out of town. You were going to be doing other stuff. And so that means we want you to be inviting the people that you know to come to this. That's why we're doing it. We don't have to do a Christmas service like that, but we're doing it so that you guys can use it as a tool in your lives to share the gospel with the people around you. We want you to invite your friends, coworkers, neighbors to celebrate Christmas with you. And a quick note for us, just logistically, that means that we're not going to be meeting the following Sunday on the 24th. So we won't be having a service here in this space on the 24th. You go be with your family, spend time with those neighbors and friends that you've shared the gospel with, invite them over or whatever. And then we also won't be having a service on the 31st either. So no services after Christmas until January 7th. That'll be our first service of 2024, our first service back together. So just make sure that that's on your radar and in your calendar. But man, there's just so many people that are around you and me every single day who don't know Jesus and the significance of Christmas. Now, they probably celebrate Christmas because it's a cultural thing for us as Americans, right? So why not use that and leverage that in their lives to share the gospel with them? Invite them to our service Take them out to dinner before or after the service. Make the most of that opportunity that you have with them and start inviting. And I hope that everyone will invite, including our kids. I hope our kids start inviting. I know my kids have in my household. Remember, I told you guys that I've set a personal goal to invite about 10 people. I've already started. I've invited two people. Um, I'm I'm chipping away at it over the next two weeks. Don't don't let it get away from you now. Uh, It'll it'll creep up on you, and then it'll be like the day before, and you're like, "I, I want to invite people. So Start thinking about it now. Make sure that you're doing that. But my kids have already invited people that they go to school with. And we've had one family say that they're going to come with them because our our kids are friends with one another. So if if my eight and nine-year-old can do that, then we can all do that. That's my prayer for us as a church is that every single one of us will have the goal of bringing at least one person with us to the Christmas event. That's the whole purpose. That's the whole idea of doing it. And so I hope you'll set that personal goal. We do strive and plan for what we love, right? And if we love God's mission, and God's mission is our mission, and we remember that people are the mission, so we love people, then we're going to do everything we can and plan ahead and set goals and think strategically. So I hope you'll do that. Get off the Christmas soapbox. Okay, there you go. Next thing I want to remind you of, though, is our multiply offering. I don't want that to get away from us. It did start December 1st, so we kicked that off this week. Let's consider how God wants to move us to give above and beyond our normal giving this month. We'll have Commitment Sunday next week, December 10th. So I hope you'll plan to be here for that, where we all get together and we all kind of put our yes on the table and say, yes, God, I believe that you can provide. I believe that you want to use my finances for your mission. And again, that's for people who are at our church. If that's not you, if you're not at our church, that's not relevant to you. But for us who call Redemption Church home, that's what we're doing in our Multiply offering this month. So make sure you're here next week for that. And then finally, last thing I want to mention is our elder-led prayer tonight, which I'm super, super excited about, right here at 4 o'clock this evening in this room. We're going to talk about our multiply ministry lane of getting into a new building. So we have two lanes. We're going to give 10% of it all the way to to missions, and then we're going to use the other 90% for a new location, a new building. And if you call Redemption Church your home, I really want you to be here for that. I really do. Man, move heaven and earth and do whatever you need to do to be here. Wear a mask if you're feeling sick, whatever it is. I don't care. Just make sure that you're here for that because it's important that we move forward together unified in prayer. And we ask God to provide for us and direct our steps and give us wisdom and what steps to take. Um, There's nothing finalized or anything like that with a new location, although we're very close. And so I just want to tease it out. There are even rumors that we might go do a walkthrough of the potential space that we have, okay? If that doesn't get you excited, I don't know what will. So I hope that you will be here to pray with us that God will give us wisdom and provision in that. All right, those are all the logistics that I have. So let's get into the message for today by starting with some prayer and asking God to help us. Let me pray together. God, thank you so much for our church. 
Thank you that we're entering into this Advent season, this Christmas season where Jesus came into the world for us. God, I pray that that will fuel our worship. As we're in this series of deep dependent worship, God, please help us to go deeper in our worship and depend on you alone. Show us what that looks like today in our work and our rest. I pray, God, that you'll move us to change our lives based off of what you have done for us. In light of your mercies, as Paul will say, God, help us to remember the gospel today and apply that to our lives and apply it to our work and rest. So I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, hey, let's go ahead and jump into Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 again. You can turn there or find it on your device. We'll be there again. Uh, We're also going to be in Genesis chapters 1 and 2 today, so if you kind of want to put a finger there in your Bible or just keep a note of that so that you can jump there on your phone or whatever, we'll have it up on the screens for you if you need it. But we're going to be talking about work and rest. And we started off the series a few weeks ago by seeing that everything that we do is worship. Whatever you do, Anything and everything, it really doesn't matter. You're either worshiping God or you're worshiping something else, but you will worship something, okay? You can't turn worship off. It's just a natural part of who we are as people. We find something that we love above all else, and that will guide and direct our lives. That's worship. We all do that in some way, shape, or form. Last week, we talked about singing as an expression of our worship, And Jacob did a great job laying that out for us. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that if you weren't here for it. But today we're going to talk about how rest and work are also expressions of our worship. So you can write this down if you're taking notes. Here's our main point for today. Work and rest are expressions of our worship. Work and rest are expressions of our worship. They're not objects of our worship. That's not what they're meant to be. They're expressions of it. Pretty straightforward. The problem is many of us do see rest and work as the objects of our worship, don't we? We see them as the things that we worship in our lives, which is easy to do in our American culture. I talk about this a lot here at our church, but as an American, we tend to do one of two extremes in any kind of thing. It's the same thing with work and rest. Usually we either work to rest because we idolize rest above all, or we work for purpose because we idolize work above all. Usually we go to an extreme, one one side or the other. When you work to rest and you value rest above anything else in your life, work becomes a curse. You see work as a curse. You just kind of grit your teeth every day, you get it done, so that you can work for the weekend and actually live your life the way that you want to live it. The weekend culture comes from this in our culture today, right? You want to play, you want to rest, you want to do whatever you want to do and truly live. You just see work as kind of an end, uh, a means to an end there. You know, retirement is like this too. I don't know if you guys know this. <laughs> Not a lot of other places in the world retire. We can in America and in the West, the Western world, but retirement kind of comes out of this. You work for 30 plus years so that you have enough money to rest and play in the last days of your life. That's what it looks like. So you, you might work to rest because you put rest above all, all right? Or on the other extreme, maybe you work for your purpose. So work is your life. You work all the time. You don't know how to rest because you think that you are equal, your value is equal to what you can do with your life and your work. So you work through the weekends. You work despite important days you should be celebrating with your family or your church. You, you work not even for money, but just for significance. You, you, don't, you don't even want, you don't care about the money. You just need the significance of what work gives you. You're like Rocky Balboa in the movie. You've just got to know you're not a bum. And the only thing that's going to help you do that is work, you think. So you've probably heard some of these statistics before. A Forbes article I read highlights this just from this year, that over 765 million vacation days have gone unused by Americans. I mean, that's just an insane amount. People are working and working and working. The article says this, this may be because they forget to use them, don't want to use them, or believe they can't use them because they're overwhelmed with work or feel like they have too much to get done. You guys remember when we used to have, you know, like less than 60-hour work weeks? That used to be a thing, you know, to have a 40-hour work week. That used to be what you did. Now that's just unheard of. We don't know anything like that, right? That's not how our culture operates at this point. Why has that changed in our culture over the last 50 years or so? Well, it's because we idolize work. It's because we find our purpose and our significance in what we do. We're buying into the idea that work is our purpose. And while work does come from our purpose and is a part of our purpose, it can't be the end goal of our worship. It just can't be. Neither neither should rest. Rest shouldn't be either. Work nor rest should be objects of our worship. Rather, they should be expressions of our worship to God. He's the object, and they become expressions of that. Maybe you find yourself swinging back and forth between the two. 
Maybe you, maybe you operate in one of these two extremes all the time. Maybe you find yourself, uh, you know, hating work and just gritting your teeth and getting through it so that you can rest. Or maybe sometimes you feel like you're working so much that you just, you, you can't even think about resting. You don't want to stop. But Christians should think differently than our American culture about both work and rest. We have to think differently. In sermon planning this week, somebody said that this could be one of the main issues that leads to the restlessness that we see in our society today. They're restless mainly because of how they view work and rest improperly. So we as Christians, because we think differently about this, we have an opportunity to speak into their lives and lead the culture in that conversation on work and rest. And no, it's not by naming your business some Christian cliche, okay? I know that's what... It's like, for some reason, the greatest temptation for every Christian business owner to, like, name their, their business something silly, right? I, you, could do, you can do a Google search of this, and there are literally hundreds of names that have been brainstormed out there. You don't have to name your coffee shop Hebrews, okay? You, you don't have to name it, you know, Holy Grounds. Uh, you, you don't have to name your financial office faith-filled finances. You don't have to name your clothing store anointed apparel. You don't have to name your restaurant blessed bites. Okay, you don't have, I looked, I googled all of these. These are just, you can, you can have somebody brainstorm for you. AI, AI will do that, right? So it's not that, right? You don't have to do something silly and, and try to be influential and lead the culture in that way. You just have to lead the culture in how you think and then how you live. Not in something silly like that. But, but you can do this through rest and how you rest as well because it's not just one religious day of observance as we've talked about here before. Though it can and probably should be at least a day of rest, but it's more of an attitude and a mindset of worship, right? That helps you go back to work even better the next day after you've rested. Yet rest is certainly for your health and for your family's health and for society's health, yes. But it's also more than just that physical need. It's a spiritual, it's a deep spiritual need that we all have because rest reminds us that we're not God, right? We're contingent beings. We rely on him to give us things. We can't produce and provide for ourselves all things. He's omnipotent, not us. And so both work and rest have to be expressions of our worship, not objects of our worship. Remember, worship is simply letting something you love most direct and influence your life every single day. It's what you ascribe ultimate worth to. Remember that? Worship is worth-ship. So what do you ascribe ultimate worth to? Is it work? Is it rest? For the Christian, we have to think differently. Our response to God and his mercies, as we'll see from Romans, is one of worship. Worship for him. So whatever we do, whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, 1 Corinthians will tell us, is to worship and glorify God, including our work and rest. All right, that's enough of that. So let's go, go ahead and get into Romans 12. Let's just read this together to get our footing for today. And then we're going to move into parts of Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and just apply all of this to our lives. But let's start with Romans 12 again so that we can remember this, starting in verse 1. It says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, remember that's the gospel, what God's done for us through Jesus, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice Dying to yourself, remember that? Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Now, I won't rehash everything that we went over a few weeks ago, only to say that our reasonable act of worship, it's reasonable, it's logical, we do this in view of the mercies of God. We give our bodies, we give our lives over to God because of how gracious and merciful he's been to us so that he can use us in his mission. That's what it means to be a living sacrifice that Paul's talking about here. You take up your cross daily, you follow Jesus, and what that means is living for his purposes and his mission, not your own purposes and not your own mission. And the Christian life, in a nutshell, is dying to ourselves so that we can live for Jesus. How do we live for Jesus? Yeah, we want to look like Jesus. Every, we want to look more and more like Jesus every day. Yes, as best we can. We want to strive to be holy or live out that holiness that he's already declared over us. But it's not just living holy for the sake of being holy. It's not just being set apart on a shelf so that we're not tainted by the culture that we live in, right? We, we are set apart for the mission. So we're set apart as God's own possession so that he can use us as instruments of his message of hope and grace. That's why we live. 
That's why we die to ourselves, as a matter of fact, to our flesh, to our old way of living. That's why we live to Christ as a sacrifice. It's so important to get. We're dying to ourselves so that we can live for his mission. But that's also why having a renewed mind is so important. We haven't talked about that yet, so let's just discuss this. You can write this down if you're taking notes. Christians think differently than the culture about work and rest. Christians think differently. We have a renewed mind, he says here. Everything we do now with our mortal bodies should be guided and directed by the mission of God in our lives. And it starts with how we think. So everything, starting with our thoughts, but then down to the things that we do with our actions. So from head to hands and everything in between, it becomes worship. We're dying to ourselves. We're living for the mission. I mean, everything, everything. I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, but even down to like brushing your teeth, right? Personal hygiene, health, the kind of entertainment we enjoy, you know, the kind of job that we do when we're working, all of that and more becomes worship because we're dying to ourselves and we're living to God. Paul says here in Romans, not to be conformed to this age, but to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And all he's saying is think differently. You think differently than the culture. Don't think like them when it comes to how you live your everyday lives, including what we're talking about today. Don't think like them on work and rest. It's got to look different. It's different. The culture will think about work differently than you. They will think about rest differently. So you have a renewed mind to think differently. This should show up in your life and how you're working and how you rest. Maybe there's no better and more clear way that how you live differently will show up than in your work and rest. Because those are the things that you do all the time. You know, a third of your week is working. A third of your week is sleeping and resting. That's a, that's a significant portion of what you do. So if people are seeing your life as a believer, that you are having a renewed mind and a living to Christ and dying to yourself, then they're going to see that in your work. It's just, it's just going to be a natural thing that happens. So, so this, is, this is where we want to go to Genesis here. Let's, let's read what Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 says about work. Let's start with work, then we'll move into talking about rest. This is an important thing for us to get here. From the very beginning, God created humanity to work. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the Garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. But if we back up to chapter 1, I just want to read chapter 1, verse 28. It says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That's a part of working the garden and keeping it. So this is what it looks like to be human beings. So remember, chapter 1, we've talked about Genesis a lot. I love this. But chapter 1 is like a 30,000-foot view of creation. And then chapter 2 zooms in and gives a specific account of the first man and woman in the garden. And so in both of these accounts, we see that men and women are to work. We're to work, and it's a part of our purpose. So in both cases, God decreed for humankind us to work. You can write this down. We're made to work. That's the, that's the first thing you can write down here. Very, I know I'm Captain Obvious today, but let's just get this in our mind, okay? Because there's something different about saying that I work to live versus I live to work. You know, there's something totally different about those two things, and, and God says that we're made to work. That's one of the purposes that he's given us. It's part of our God-given purpose. Why? Because he made us to be like himself. What did God do? He created the heavens and the earth. In six days, he created the heavens and the earth and so we, being like God, are made to create. We're made to design. We're made to work just the way that God has. We're his image bearers. And so we're made to be like him and work. No wonder it's easy to get our identity confused with our work then, right? Because in some sense, how we work is a major part of our identity. It's very similar to sexuality if you think about it. Because it's, it's a part of our identity. It's a very important part of our identity. But it's not all of our identity. And so we can skew these things to become the greatest thing in our lives rather than a part of who we are. We can make work our identity or our sexuality our identity rather than seeing it as a part, an important part, but a part of our identity. Our identity comes from being an image bearer of God, being like him, being in relationship with him and being like him, not in what we do, and yet what we do is such an important part of how we identify. So it's very interesting that we not get those, and, and very important that we not get those things messed up. We see what it is and keep it in its proper place. Because if God made us to work, then he made us to worship through our work. He made us to worship through that. So this is really cool. Genesis 2.15 says this, the word for work and keep. Remember, work and keep the garden is what he said there. The word for work can also be translated as serve. 
We're made to serve and keep in the garden. Or some translations will even say worship. Work, serve, worship. It all has the same root word in Hebrew. Very interesting. Some commentators that I read would even say that a better translation of work and keep the garden is to worship and obey God in the garden. That's really interesting to me. There's something so significant about our work that at its foundation, it's integrally connected to our worship. So whatever we do as work is ultimately an expression of how we worship God. Maybe you remember this from our Colossians series back in April if you were here. Colossians 3.23 says, Work willingly at whatever you do as though you were working for the Lord rather than for people. I mean, many American Christians seem to think that in order to serve God, you have to be in some kind of Christian ministry or church ministry or something like that. Uh, in my studies this week, I heard a great dad joke that I want to give you guys. Uh, you know, I thought it was really, really uh, sharp joke. The pastor preaching said, you guys pay me to be a professional Christian, so I'm paid to be good. But you guys are unpaid Christians, so you're supposed to be, still be good, so you're good for nothing. Huh? Okay, there we go. There's the chuckle. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. Okay, anyway, dad joke. But listen, you don't have to be in professional ministry as a Christian, a professional Christian, to follow God and do what he's asked you to do and live on mission for him. As a matter of fact, you shouldn't be. Most of us, most of the church shouldn't be on a staff somewhere in church. Ephesians 4 is this constant reminder for us that the ministers in our church are you. You're the ministers here, not me. My role is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Your work is to do the ministry. You're doing the ministry to others every single day, representing the Lord in whatever you do, Colossians 3.23 says, right? You're living as a sacrifice in whatever you're doing with your hands every single day for his mission, serving him through serving others as an expression of your worship. That's what your work should look like every single day. The way J.D. Greer at the summit has always said it is, whatever you do, do it well for the glory of God, somewhere strategic for the mission of God. Maybe you hate your job right now and you're wondering how it even matters. Maybe, maybe you're struggling to figure out why your job would even matter in the whole scope of the mission of God. You just have to remember that God has sovereignly placed you there to do your work for his glory, strategically for his mission. God has put you there on purpose to reach the people where you are. So do it well for his glory and for his mission. Unless you're in organized crime or something, and then this doesn't apply to you, okay? Don't, don't just, uh, we need to have a conversation if that's where you're at, okay? So that we can help you get out of that, all right? But I'm not saying that you never leave a job either. Don't, don't hear me saying that. Like sometimes the only solution to be able to glorify God and live on mission for him strategically is to find a better job that you can do that, a better situation or a better circumstance where you can do that more effectively. Sometimes that's the case. But if you really dislike your job that you're in right now, have you ever tried thinking about it as worship? Have you ever tried praying and asking God to show you how this is worship and how it serves him and others before you enter into it? Maybe you just need to start there. Maybe you need to ask God to show you how that works in your life. If you're a doctor or a nurse, this should be easy to apply to your lives. It's, it's a broken industry, yes. The medical industry, it's, it's got a lot of unhealthy habits. It's, it's got an unhealthy culture at times. But, and, it, and it's very hard. But can you imagine that when you save a life, or you serve somebody who's sick, or you help heal the diseased, or you walk with somebody through a difficult situation that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do, that glorifies, as hard as it is, Man, that serves others and it glorifies God. Your service is ultimately an expression of your worship. Man, if you're a CPA and you help people with finances, for example, you're helping them be better stewards of their money that God has given them to take care of. Man, you serving them, that's an expression of your worship to God because you're serving them and him in turn. If you're a teacher, man, you're striving to teach children to help mature them and make, the, make them have a better life and whatever it is that you're teaching, Man, that serves them, that serves society, that worships God, it's expression of worship. If you're a stay-at-home mom, maybe you have the hardest job of all. You're managing your household, you're trying to raise your children. Man, that glorifies God. You're serving your family, and that glorifies God through what you're doing with your work. Listen, I know it can be difficult to think about your work as worship, but God is in those things. He's with you in them, and he's calling you even when they feel like a grind, even when they, they feel like they're a part of the curse, he's calling you to worship. 
In Genesis 3, we see that one of the effects of the rebellion against God is that our work will become laborious and hard. It will become toil. What caused that, though? Not work. Our sin, right? Our rebellion against God, that's what caused it. So if you think that work is a grind, maybe you need to take a step back and think, why do I feel this way? Why does work feel like toil? Well, Genesis 3 tells us it's because of my curse. It's because of my sin. It's because I'm rebelling against God. Maybe there's something that I need to do to deal with God on this and worship him instead. Redeem work, right? That's what we're supposed to be doing, redeeming work and its original purpose, to give God glory, to be an expression of our worship. But of course, the problem is work and rest often become the objects of our worship, as we said at the very beginning. They don't become expressions of it. They're objects of it. We continue to either hate work so much that we idolize rest, or we love work so much that we worship that and find our identity in it and whatever we do, not in, not in Christ. That may be one of the reasons why you're still struggling with deep, dependent worship this year. Maybe, maybe you're starting to reflect over the course of the last couple of weeks, and our focus as a church has been to grow deeper in our worship with God and to focus on Him alone, depend on Him alone. Maybe you're at a place where you're starting to think, I don't feel like my worship's gotten any deeper. Or I feel like I'm struggling to depend on God alone. Why is that? It could be because of the way you're viewing work and rest. Because of the identity issue that it's causing in your heart. Maybe maybe you're still trying to prioritize what you do or how you you prepare for, for work every day or how you think about what others feel or think about you. Let's just start with one situation I've seen play out multiple times in our church. I'll give you one example of this. I talked to a person several, quite a few months ago now who was really upset with a decision that we'd made as leaders in our church. Surprise, surprise. People get upset with decisions that leaders make. I know it happens. I love you guys. Sometimes it happens, okay? And, and she was really upset, and I didn't think it was that big of an issue. I really didn't. I, did, I thought it was kind of a smaller issue, but she was very, very emotional, very upset, very angry. And so I started a line of questioning try to get to the bottom of where that anger was coming from because it was, was it coming from the decision that we'd made? Was it coming from something else? And after probably quite a few minutes, 10, 15 minutes of questioning, trying to get to the bottom of this issue, it wasn't really the decision that we'd made that was the problem, I don't think. What was really the problem was that she was overwhelmed at work. She finally got to the end of the questioning and realized that she was burned out. She was frustrated by her work. She was tired because she was overworking. And she was burned out, and it was affecting everything else in her life. It was affecting her relationship with God, with her husband, with our church and our leadership. So she would come into church every week feeling guilty and beat down because she would hear the application. She wouldn't hear the gospel of resting in Jesus, which we'll talk about in a minute. She wouldn't hear that. She would hear, well, I've got to do something to be better. I've got to do something to please God. I've got to do something so that I can be a better Christian And man, it was just one more thing that she was trying to pile on to her plate of already having too many things, and she just couldn't fathom doing that. And so she got upset, and she got frustrated. And so I unsuccessfully, unfortunately, tried to help her understand that anything that God would be asking her to do, or even that we would be pushing her to do, would be for her good. It would be so that she could gain the rest that she was so desperately needing. Her work was the problem. She was placing work at a place that it shouldn't be. It was no longer an expression of her worship. It had become the object of it. But unfortunately, she didn't want to hear that when I pushed back on her and she left our church. And that happens sometimes. People just don't see it. Maybe that's some of you right now. Maybe you're right at the edge. Maybe you're just so frustrated about something. Maybe, maybe you're just right on the edge of burnout and you don't even see it. It's not because of anything God's asking you to do or because of our church or because you know, your, your family's asking you to do. But it's because of your work and how you're viewing what you do in your workplace. This isn't a busyness issue, guys. We're all busy, okay? We, we all have a lot of things to do. I promise you that. It's a worship issue. It's a prioritization issue. You're worshiping something that's not God, and you might not even see it because you're blinded by it. You're, you're, you're working. We're fed this American dream that's a flat-out lie that says that if we can work enough, then we can be something. We can be somebody. We can make something of ourselves. We can have the family that we want. We can have the stuff that we want. We can have the future that we want. Man, guys, it's a lie. I had one of my family members say this to me several years ago. I'll never forget it. She used to follow Jesus. She doesn't anymore. She follows the American dream. And she said to me, Carter, haven't I made something? Look look at what I've done. 
haven't I made something of myself? Haven't I done well for myself? We were talking about the gospel. I was pushing her to say, hey, I think you're idolizing something. She said, yeah, but haven't I done well? I, I, I guess, but according to who? Yeah, you've got all this stuff. You've got a massive house. You've got a car. You've got what, uh, everything you could ever want. But has it really enhanced your life? You're sitting here angry at me because I'm threatening an idol that you have in your life. Man, maybe that's you. Maybe that's where you're at. Maybe you're struggling to idolize work and you've bought into the American lie. And so it's, it's the American dream, but it's really the American lie. And maybe you're worshiping your work. Others of you might be struggling with worry in your work. Maybe you overwork yourself because you're worried about everything. You're worried all the time. You're worried you're not going to have enough money to survive or to support your family. Or maybe you're just afraid of what people think of you. Maybe you're worried that you know, you're not going to be enough in somebody's eyes. You don't have a proper fear of God. You have a fear of man. So you either work to make ends meet because you're worried about not having enough or you work to gain the approval of others. Either way, work has become an object of your worship, not an expression of it. That's why you don't push back on mandatory overtime even though you know that you need a break. That's why you work long hours when you're asked or you do whatever you think will please the boss or the company because you're afraid of losing everything or losing their respect and approval. Whatever the case is, you're worshiping your work, not God. The work has become the object, not the expression. There's multiple ways that can play out in your life. I hope you'll figure out whether or not that's you and how it's playing out for you. But I want to give you two ways you can recognize if you're worshiping your work. If work has become the object, not the expression. There's two things, community with others and keeping tabs on your emotions. Very simple things that are very hard for you to live out if work is your object. So the first thing is being in community will help you see your idolatry. That's the first thing. Being in community will help you see this. But you might be so busy that you don't even want to take time to build meaningful relationships with other believers. That's part of the problem. That's where, that's where it gets difficult because you're not even willing to be around enough to make res- uh, deep relationships with people so that they can help you see your idolatry. It's such that, you know, if one of them were to say to you, if you were, if you were in our church, for example, like I was with this girl that I was talking about several months ago, and somebody was to say to you, hey, I think you might be prioritizing your work above everything. Could you even listen to them? Have you created deep enough relationships with somebody here to even allow them to speak into your life in that way? Would you even hear what they had to say? Hopefully one day you will. The late pastor Tim Keller wrote this in his incredible book, Counterfeit Gods, which I would highly recommend. He said, an idolatrous attachment can lead you to break any promise, rationalize any indiscretion, or betray any other allegiance in order to hold on to it. It may drive you to violate all good and proper boundaries. To practice idolatry is to be a slave. It's to be a slave. That's what will end up happening with you. If you don't let others speak into your life and show you that you're idolizing your work, you're going to be a slave to it. You've always got to work. You'll always be at work. You'll always be attached to your phone, to your email. Always be enslaved to it. Because anything but God makes a terrible master right? But then the second thing is keeping tabs on your emotions. So you can write this down. Your emotions will help you see your idolatry. So if you don't want to listen to somebody else, at least start with your emotions. Do some self-reflecting today and see what your emotions are telling you because what's going to happen is your normal emotions get taken to critical emotions. So, so don't, don't misunderstand. Normal emotions are good. They're normal. They show us that something's going on in our life. But when those emotions get taken to a critical level, that's when it becomes a problem. So for example, when something good in your life gets taken away, you might get angry. Okay, well, that's a normal emotion. Jesus got angry. You know, when something good in your life gets jeopardized, you might worry over it. You might have concern over it. Jesus had worry and concern. It's a very normal thing. When something good in your life is lost, you grieve over that, that loss. That's a normal emotion. Jesus grieved quite a bit in the Bible, right? But if you idolize something, then those emotions get taken to the next level. And that's, the par- that's part of the problem. If you idolize a good thing and make it a God thing, we might say, your emotions turn into something else entirely. So that when that God thing gets taken away, you're not just angry, you get bitter. You can't forgive. It gets taken to a critical level. Or when that God thing is jeopardized, you don't just worry. You get paralyzed. You're so anxious. You're so afraid that you can't think about anything else. You're gripped with fear and anxiety. Or if that God thing gets lost, you don't just grieve, 
but you despair. Uh, You can't see life worth living any longer. You're just so down, so despairing. Everything gets taken to a critical level when you idolize it. And so you can apply this to your work. But Keller wrote this, again, in Counterfeit Gods, highly recommend. He said, when anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it's essentially an idol, something you're actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. And he's going to say anger in the rest of the paragraph, but I want you to hear any emotion that gets taken to a critical level. So he says, when such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Therefore, if you find that despite all the efforts to forgive, your anger and bitterness cannot subside, then you may need to look deeper and ask, what am I defending? What is so important that I cannot live without? It may be that until some inordinate desire, so this critical level, is identified and confronted, you'll not be able to master your anger or, like I said, any emotion that comes up at that critical level. Idols drive our emotions to a much darker and deeper place than they ought to go. That's why the old Puritan minister, Thomas Chalmers, said that idols can't be uprooted, they can only be replaced. So you can't just uproot an idol and think that it's going to go well for you. What you're going to have to do is replace that idol with something greater. And you will replace it with something. That's why you need to replace it with God. You're dying to yourself, Paul says, so that you can live to God. So replace that idol with Jesus. When we do that, when we replace our idols, what does the Bible call that? It calls it rest. That's true rest. When we replace our idols of work, for example, or laziness and rest even with Jesus, then our work and rest become expressions of our worship, not objects of it. So let's talk about rest just for a few minutes before we wind our time down together here. Yes, you're created to work. It's in our purpose as we bear God's image, but so is rest. So is rest. We're contingent beings. Rest reminds us we're not God. So Genesis 2, let me read this to you. Genesis 2, chapter 2, verse 1 says this. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed, and on the seventh day God had completed his work that he had done, And he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he restored, excuse me, rested from all his work of creation. So what do we learn from this? We learn that we are also made for rest. So you can write that down as our second big point for today. Made to rest. We're made to rest. How do you get that from this? This is God resting, right? Well, if we're made to bear God's image, and he worked, and so we're to work, and he rested, then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to rest, right? We're made to be like God. He set apart this seventh day of creation here. And the very concept of rest will show us that our need is really for him. That's what rest is supposed to do for us. I've said this to our church before on this passage, but that seventh day of creation is the only day in the creation week without an end. So when you go back and you read this whole passage, you see that the first day has a beginning and an end, and it was good. Second day, same thing, beginning and end, and it was good. The seventh day, though, it has a beginning, God rested, and then there's no end in sight. And that is not an accident. That is a literary device that we have so that we can see that that rest that continues on is supposed to be something that God wants his people to enter into because that's why in chapter 2 we go right to the garden and and humanity and their purpose. But that's why in Genesis chapter 3 it's messed up. Because the rebellion is telling God, no, I don't want your rest. I know you want me to enter into this rest with you and this relationship with you. I don't want that. That's what our rebellion is. So we're made to rest, and yet the problem is that we tell God we don't want that. The the tragic part of the fall, or at least one of the tragic parts of the fall, is that we rebel against God and say we don't want him. We don't need his rest, we believe. We can be our own God. It means we're saying to God, I don't need you, God. That's that's what makes it personal for us. Rest reminds us that God is our true provider. He is our creator. He is the one who is over our lives. We depend on him, not our work, right? And the really cool thing is that we can trace this endless seventh day of rest all the way throughout the rest of the Old Testament to see that God is still inviting us back into it. We've rebelled, told him we don't want rest in him, and yet he's inviting us back into it all the time. He's telling Israel the whole, throughout the Old Testament, enter my rest with me. Here's the Sabbath. 
to keep it holy. Here's this festival to help remind you that you aren't in control. Here's all of these things to help remind you that you need to enter my rest with me. You need me. I'm your provider. I'm your protector. The problem is we don't, we don't pay attention to that, and yet we can trace it all throughout the rest of the Bible to the true source of rest that finally comes in the New Testament. Because you remember what Jesus said about himself that we read this year from Matthew chapter 11. This is what Jesus said. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Man, why could Jesus say that? Because Jesus did the work of salvation for us so that we can rest in him. That's why. Jesus did the work for us so that we can rest in him. Now all of these Old Testament moments, the Sabbath rest, the festivals, the new moon stuff that they were doing, all of this stuff that God was telling Israel to go back to him, rest in him, rely on him, Jesus says, it's fulfilled in me. It's, I'm the rest. I'm the rest that you've been looking for, Jesus says. He is our true and lasting rest. That endless seventh day that God is inviting us into Jesus is the initiator and the enabler of that rest. And he's bidding people come to him and die so that they can live in him and rest for all eternity. So when we work so hard to worship anything but God, we're telling God we think we can do it on our own. We want to save ourselves, and the sad apparent irony of that is that we just can't. I mean, it's just so apparent. We have to sleep. We literally have to close our eyes every single day or we'll die. And yet we somehow think that we're like in control of everything, right? I mean, it's insane. It's insane to think that. And yet we do it. It doesn't make any sense. And what God does is takes all that chaos in our heart and our mind and he makes order out of it when we believe in Jesus. Because he's our rest. We rest in him. That's what rest does. It takes all of that, that emotion and that energy that you've lost in work and it fills you back up. That's what true rest really is. So if we just pause and we stop and we listen to God and rest in him, we'll see that he's met the greatest need that we have. Because in Christ, not only do we have rest, but now we have purpose. Now we have joy. Now we have satisfaction. We're reminded that work and rest are simply expressions of our worship, not objects of it. And that's one reason why we don't want to overemphasize rest and idolize it. Because if you try to rest apart from Jesus at all, then you're going to become lazy or self-centered. That's what rest apart from Jesus does. You're saying, Carter, that we have a spiritual component to all of the rest that we enter into? Yeah. Yes. I'm even telling you that when you go to sleep at night, that's an expression of worship. Because you're telling God with your body that you cannot sustain yourself. You're a contingent being. So yes, everything has a, has a spiritual component to it. That means when we binge Netflix to rest, that ain't rest. I, I know it hits me hard, okay? I okay? <laughs> it hits me where it feels, okay? So I get, I get that. But that means emptying our minds, vegging out to TV, video games. Uh, I, that also has started to get me on the Wii. I've told you, some of you guys, I play the Wii a lot now. I play, I'm, we're, we're in a, it's for the kids, okay? But yeah, anyway. I mean, some, uh, we veg out to all these things. And entertainment, of course, is not bad. That can also become a, an expression of worship. It can but when it becomes the object of our worship and we're saying, I go to that thing for rest, man, that's when we've lost it. Rest has become the object, not the expression. Whatever we do to rest should point us back to Jesus. Anything that we do. I mean, if you go hiking, yeah, you're resting. You're, physically, you're resting your emotions, your mind, or whatever, but you're glorifying God. The fact that you can move your body and you have health and life, and then you go and you see the beautiful creation around you. You're glorifying him. That's an expression of worship. You watch a movie. Again, movies aren't bad. But man, if you sit down and watch that movie for the sake of thinking that that's going to give you rest, it's not. You watch a movie, though, to glorify God, to find the gospel in it, to enjoy the fact that there's a story here that you can tap into because you know it taps into the greater story of creation that God has made. Right? You use that as an expression of worship, or friends even. Being around friends without using that as worship, it's empty. Yeah, you can be around people, but they're never going to fill you up. They can't be the objects of your worship. God has to be. So when you're around people that you love, you're reminded that God has created you for community, and that's an expression of your worship. 
Your, grat- your gratitude for that, your love for your friends, their love for you, that is worship to God. You've got to see the rest as an expression, not an object of worship. Do you, does that make sense? Are you seeing that? And this can also look like saying no to things that God says are actually life-giving in your life. That's part of the problem sometimes. We might think that saying no to something like a community with other believers is going to be rest for us. Well, I'll tell you what, we've gone through this multiple times this year. Anytime you're with other believers, that should be an expression of your worship in rest. Anytime. Even the difficult ones, okay? <laughs> it's it, because we all believe in Jesus, and so being in community is rest. Maybe you read John Mark Comer's book, Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, and you started cutting things out of your life, maybe rightly, but then ironically, you started to cut out the things that God says will actually give you rest, like coming to church regularly or going to community group with other believers. Man, if that's what you got out of that book, you read it wrong. Because the object of your rest is Jesus. That's the object. So whatever you do ought to lead you back to him. Whatever you cut out, means you're cutting it out because it wasn't leading you back to him the way that it should. You see that? I'm telling you, being alone, scrolling social media, vegging out, even doing good things like hiking and being around people you love, all of that can't be your object of rest. It can only be an expression of it. So we have to see that today. When you aren't getting the rest that you need, what is that called? When you don't feel rested, What is the language that we use here? And I can see it on that sign out in the lobby right now. What is the language we use? You're restless. Mm. When when the things that you thought would give you rest aren't actually giving you rest, you're restless. So doing everything in your power to know and worship the redeeming Savior through whatever you do, that is the only thing that can give you rest. Rest is stopping something, sure, so that you can focus on the one thing that matters most, Jesus which means Christians look at rest differently. We think about rest differently. So as we move into the application and we wind our time down together here, you can write this down as our takeaway for today. Christians balance both work and rest as worship. It's a balance. We're balancing work and rest as worship, as expressions, not objects, of our worship. Rest isn't the end goal, neither is work. So take steps to find the right balance in your own life to the glory of God as an expression of worship. Don't let yourself fall into one extreme or the other. Fight for that narrow way as we talk about here a lot. Jesus, and as we've even seen in Genesis, God at creation, they're setting up this balance of needing both work and rest in our lives and using that as worship. So part of worshiping God appropriately appropriately, is not overemphasizing one to the detriment of the other. Because when you work too much, you burn out. When When you rest too much, you're lazy or selfish got to see both as an expression of worship to God and the balance that you find here so that you can live that productive life that glorifies God but so that you can also serve others and have joy you might still be asking something like this though I know that there's a lot, a lot of you think analytically like me and maybe you're asking yeah but what do I do if my employer is still overworking me like I'm locked in I'm a slave to it now I see what you're saying I see that I'm overworking myself and I'm not resting Appropriately, What do I do, though? If that's my job, if that's the industry standard for me to work a 60-hour work week every week, what do I do? What if I, I you know, I work most Sundays, I work most week, days when I, oh, I should be having community group or whatever it is. Listen, I'm not trying to heap guilt on you, okay? So I want to say that. Please don't hear me saying this as a guilty thing and that you, you're doing something wrong or whatever. Listen, if you're working on Sundays, you're not in sin, right? The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. That's what Jesus taught. That's not what that means. He's telling you, though, that you do need to rest. You do probably need a specific at least one day of rest. You probably do need to make sure that whatever you're doing to rest is pointing you back to him. That is what he is saying here. So if your employer isn't giving you the opportunity to rest the way that you need, then you just need to talk to him. This is how they're going to start to see your life is different as a Christian. See, I think the reason that our culture has gotten this way is because too many Christians have failed to speak up and say, yeah, I need to rest differently than what you're allowing me to rest. We've idolized work. So, of course, it just naturally goes that way. And now we're all burned out and people are making mistakes at work in critical ways or they're burning out in ways that they're acting immorally. I mean, there's all of these problems in the workplace. Why? It's because we're probably not resting well. So let's lead the conversation. Go to your employer and ask them. 
please, I need this time off. Let's, let, let's try to figure out any way that I can have a day off every week because I want to be a good worker. I want to rest properly so that I can work properly when I come back. And if your work is worship to God, you're going to fight for that time of rest. You're going to fight for time with your family because it directs you back to God. You're going to fight for time at church because it directs you back to God. You're going to fight for time alone because it directs you back to God. And you got to do that or else you're never going to be a good worker. If your work is worship to God, then you're going to, you're going to start to speak up about how much rest you need to be a cultural leader at your work and that. But then your boss, if he doesn't listen to you over time, maybe you will have to move on. I don't know. Maybe you give it so long and, and you have these conversations for a while and it doesn't happen and so you just have to move on so that you can glorify God better in a different situation. We leave jobs all the time for money. Why wouldn't we leave so that we could be more godly? Man, we've got our priorities mixed up if that's the case, right? Don't worry, I'm not going to leave my job, though, okay? Even though you overwork me. I promise I won't, okay? You overwork me sometimes, okay? But all right, no, it's not you, it's me, <laughs> right? That's a joke. So if your boss doesn't listen to you, maybe you have that conversation, maybe you have to leave, I don't know. Compartmentalize our lives. All of life is worship, including our work and our rest. So think about work and rest differently than the culture. Don't make them objects of your worship. Make them expressions of your worship. And over the next few minutes, what we're going to do now is we're going to respond to what we hear preached over us. And we do this every week here at Redemption Church where we respond through three things. Prayer, praise, and practice. So we're going to do that now. We're going to spend some time praying. I'll leave some prayer here. But you can spend time at your seat praying and repenting Asking God to show you where this idol has taken root, whether it's rest, whether it's work, whether it's a little bit of both. Ask God to change you, renew your mind. Ask him to give you humility so that you'll listen to the people around you in your life. Repent and take time to do that and pray. But then we're going to praise through song and singing. And we're going to practice communion together. So let me lead us in praying first. God, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening with us today. We hope that it was an encouragement to you. But you know, we don't see this as a replacement for gathering with other believers in a local church context. So if you don't have a local church, we would encourage you to plug in with one wherever you are. And if you're in Roanoke, Virginia, we'd love to invite you to plug in with us here at Redemption Church. And you're welcome anytime to gather with us. But you can check us out online at our, our website, redemptionroanoke.com. You can look for other content or resources there. But thanks again for listening.